Chapter 33 of Mr. Wicker's Window by Carly Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. This recording is by Arthur Piantidosi. The smoke of the guns of both ships so hung upon the air that Chris counted on its heavy curtain to screen him from his enemies. He swam to the far side of the attacking vessel and there forced his magic knife for the second time against the side of the vulture. He was treading water, holding to a rope that dangled over the side of the ship, when, with no interior tremor of warning, a cut that he almost thought had penetrated the bone lashed across his shoulders, narrowly missing his left ear. Without stopping to think, Chris took half a breath and submerged as deeply as he could go, hearing about of him, even through the sound of the battle and the wavering water, the <laughs> of Claggett Chew's metal-tipped whip as it hit the water where he had been only a second before. Chris would have dived under the great barnacled hull of the vulture then and there to come out upon the other side, but good swimmer though he was, he was unsure that he could hold even a full breath for so long a dive. Added to this, he had had no time to do more than gasp a momentary breath of air, and even as he rose to the surface with bursting lungs, he saw the figure of a man leap into the water from the side of the vulture. Before the bubbles of the man's descent had had time to disappear, the most dreaded of all sights for a swimmer showed itself above the water. It was the sinister's triangle of a shark's fin cutting the surface of the sea as it advanced with terrifying speed to where Chris gazed, almost paralyzed with horror. Resting the knife into the pouch at his neck, Chris took the shape of a dolphin and plunged deeply, even as the infuriated shark was carried over and over beyond him by its own impetus before it could turn. But turn it did with lightning speed, and Chris knew he had no protection against that murderous underslung jaw, racked above and below with deadly teeth. The shark, in one long mo powerful movement, had turned and gone under the dolphin, which now raced toward the uh, upward from the dim, lightless depths of the sea to the surface where it hoped to escape. The shark turned on its back with a motion once lazy and sickening in its assurance of its prey. Its soft, greenish-white belly glimmered slimily in the sea, its frightful jaws open as it came almost languidly up through the water, certain of snapping its adversary in half. But in that one mo 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 movement where it turned belly uppermost, its eyes were unable to watch its goal. And in that moment the dolphin took a, a desperate leap for the water, and the seabird soared into the air. The seabird had no more than wheeled to sight the shark below, and a scream from the air above it made it instantly drop and shipped to one side as a hawk talon spread and eyes red with hatred plunged down from a great height its beak opened to seize and rend the seabird veering away on the wind became a fly but the hawk instantly vanished to be replaced by a bat it started after the fly with such velocity that it was the current of air from its wings that drove the fly closer to the pirate ship with a despairing effort, the fly flew directly into the smoke of the battle, and at that moment a mouse hid in a corner near an overturned cast, shaking in all its limbs, its pointed teeth chattering with fright. Finally regaining its breath, it ventured to look around the corner. All seemed serene to the mouse who saw no shadow of danger, although sounds of battle still ebbed and flowed on the deck below it. Crisscrossed by shouts and orders, screams and groans as the pirates and the sailors of the Miravel doggedly fought on. The Sostos wished to take its own shape and continue its work with a magic knife which had been interrupted. It, though, too soon to have done any good. 
At last it decided to run along the deck near Claggett Chew's cabin. From there it hoped to reach the side of the ship nearest to the Mirabelle. As it slipped from its hiding place and began its run, he realized too late its mistake, and panic almost overcame it, for a cat had been crouched behind it and now gave a mighty pounce. One outstretched paw came down on the mouse's tail, with a mouse wrenched free and desperate and panting, dashed into the first opening it saw. This proved to be no less than Claggett Shoe's cabin, the door of which had been left open so that Osterbridge Hawsey could watch the fight with the least possible discomfort. He sat somnolent in a comfortable chair, his long legs stretched out before him, smoking a clay pipe. His attention wandering, as it so often did, he failed to see the mouse that ran under his legs into the shadow behind neath them. The frantic mouse, now determined in the seconds left for its decision, to attempt a bold move in a flash, in fact, as the yellow cat with angry yellow-slitted eyes put its head about around the door jamb, a jade-green parakeet with red and yellow breast feathers hopped onto Masterbridge Hawsey's ankle, and with the speed tempered by its most engaging ways, sidled up Osterbridge Hawsey's outstretched leg. The yellow-eyed cat made a dash with the most clawing paws outstretched to fall upon the bird. The parakeet fluttered into the air out of reach and came down higher up on Osterbridge Hawsey's knee. Osterbridge, startled from his daydream, shooed away the cat and got up precipitously enough to give it a kick which sent it meowing from the cabin. Osterbridge, vastly pleased to see his green parakeet again, was wreathed in smiles. Ah, oh, no! he exclaimed, holding out a condescending fit. Petit monsieur, back again! Oh, simply, simply enchanting! This one poor Osterbridge was so bored and had no one to talk to. Well, not pretty. And both Osterbridge and the parakeet cocked their heads to one another. And where have you been, I wonder? Osterbridge examined the little bird perched on his finger and his eyes were thoughtful it is true you have a little remark on the side of your jaw a parakeets have jaws my friend but there is no such thing as magic not the kind of magic whereby human can be something else he broke into peals of high laughter <laughs> what a joke if it were possible now what could i be eh he looked fondly at the bird, and the bird looked back at him, daring to open its beak and emitted a small bit clear. Go! Go yourself! returned Osterbridge in high good humor. He leaned back in his chair. Now all this is a most engaging train of thought, he pursued. If I could change myself, what should I be? He fell to musing, and as he did so, the dreaded shadow Chris had anticipated fell across the doorway. A moment later, Claggett Chew, limping from an old wound and a newly received bruise, stood in the entrance. Osterbridge as he yawned. Oh, there, there you are at last, Claggett, he said. Battle are over? It still sounds rather ferocious to me. But of course I'm no expert. Heaven forbid! Osterbridge ended, rolling his eyes toward the ceiling with his vague smile. As Claggett Chew did not reply, Osterbridge looked back at him. The pirate's eyes were clicked on the parakeet, and its twitching fingers played with the steel-tipped whip. Claggett Chew's voice when it came was as sharp and as cold as a dagger in a dead man. I will have that bird, Osterbridge, he said. Osterbridge's expression did not change, but his eyes did, and they became almost as icy as Claggett Chew's. Oh, no, you will not, Claggett, 
he said, and his high-pitched voice managed to be saturated with sarcasm. This is the one thing that is keeping me from unutterable boredom. Will you go into your intermittable fight? He paused to give Claggett Shoe a cutting look. You know how I feel about piracy. Too terribly degrading. I can see it as excitement and rewards. But it is unnecessary. Claggett Shoe's eyes had a way of not blinking. They held a crocodile fixity. His tone when he spoke again did not vary. I am not a trader, Stubridge, nor shall I bandy words with you on this subject. Give me that bird or I shall take it from you. Osterbridge Hawsey rose with the slow grace from his chair. His hands curled gently but protectingly around his parakeet. Claggett, he said in his thin voice that cut now with the unexpected thinness of paper. I am sorry to say such a thing to you, but your fever during the weeks just passes undoubtedly also your brain. You are a madman, Claggett. Osterbridge Hawsey removed himself with deliberation from the proximity of the doorway, placing himself on the other side of the cabin table, over which hung the swinging lamp. He did not turn his back to Claggett Chew, nor take his eyes from him. Kindly read the room, Claggett, he went on, in too quiet a voice to be otherwise than poisonous, until you are more yourself. Your conduct and tone are unbecoming a gentleman. Osterbridge said, with his hand held high in disdainful dignity. They were an extraordinary sight. The shaven-head, clay-faced pirate looming so high and so huge in the doorway that he filled it all together. His clothes torn, filthy and stained from the battle and from careless weeks at sea. His companion was a travesty of his one-time elegance, dirty lace ruffles spotted by forgotten meals. His velvet coat marked by chairbacks and soiled from months of constant wear. His mouth there unwashed and sleazily caught back, no longer curled with such fine exactitude. Both men had been housed together for too long. Long ago they had exhausted all topics of conversation. Their two different personalities had for months been festering, each at the sight of the other. Now Cleggett Shoe ground out between his clenched teeth. You are a fool, Osterbridge. I've always been one, and I'll so remain. Do not defy me, and do not give up that bird as hell as my witness. I shall snatch it from you with his whip, and nothing will stop me. Osterbridge reached behind him with his right hand, holding the parakeet in an increasingly uncomfortable and tightening grip in his left. On the wall behind him hung his rapier and its scabbard, delicately incised and showing the fine workmanship it is its French origin. With a quick, deft movement, Osterbridge's fingers had found the hilt and drawn the rapier out, his face snarling, his eyes expressionless. They were fixed on Glegachu, who had not moved from where he leaned against the side of the doorway. Osterbridge Hawsey's voice was almost more frightening when he spoke again than Claggett Shoes as he slowly brought the rapier to his side with quiet, calculated gestures. I have more than enough of your ordering, Claggett. You may order your scurvy men about what you wish. Athletes, rascals, thieves, and murderers who know no better than to do your bidding. Knowing that they may well die by your hands as they some time or order, but you have met your match, aye. 
or Sabri Chaucy shall not give you into a madman and a murdering pillager. How I ever came to join you, your pirates, God alone knows, but you should not govern me, nor shall you one object that as my own. On guard! he cried, whisking out the rapier. Shh! As he did so, such is the force and training of habit, his left hand automatically came to the first position of the fencer and the duelist, and as he came up and the fingers slackened about the parakeet, the long whip lashed out and curled around Osteridge Hawsey's hand. The parakeet ducked into uncircling fingers. Osteridge Hawsey let out a piercing scream, more of a rage than a pain, and opened his hand. The parakeet, liberated, flew straight into the face of the man with a whip, pecking at it with its sharp beak, scratching at it with his pin-like claws, and beating its wings in such confusing fury that the pirate bobbed his head. At the same time, the big man stepped backward, throwing up his left arm in an attempt either to catch the bird or drive it off. The bird's attack lasted for only a moment. Then, as Klagachu's fingers grasped at it, the parakeet was off over his shoulder and lost in the din and obscurity of the battle. Behind it, it heard the cries of hatred and rage as the pirate and Osteridge Hawsey faced one another in the cabin to fight with whip and sword amid the crash of overturned tables and chairs and the splintering crack of the lamp and the window panes. Chapter 33 End